For the next several minutes, I want to talk about Christ in apocalyptic literature. What I mean by that is many of us see apocalyptic literature as being informed by Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's, that's one symbol for two things, death and resurrection. It's not a house on top of the cross. We see that apocalyptic literature talks about the end. And so what we often do, some of you don't, but what we often do is we take a text like Daniel 7 and we read it and we try to decipher how it talks about the end. Or we look at another passage of scripture and see where it talks about the end. Or even we might go to a text in Matthew and see where it talks about the end. Or in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and see where it talks about the end. Or even other parts of Revelation like Revelation 1 or Revelation 8 or Revelation 19. And we see where they talk about the end. And, and what I want for us to get away from this lecture is that by always going completely to the end, we might leave Jesus left behind. Ooh, that's a book that, that's a book that I was basically raised on, and it was a part of a, I went to a public school, and that's what, one of the books that we read. So, all kidding aside, what we can see from Scripture is that Christ is shown in all of his grandeur in many parts through apocalyptic literature. And what I briefly spoke on earlier is that we don't want to separate or flatten all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus promises to do, and all that Jesus is currently doing. So, in short, what I mean is there are places in Scripture that explicitly talk about Christ's second coming, Christ's return. So, like Revelation 19, it would be hard to see that that is not talking about the end. It's definitely talking about the end. Or other passages of Scripture, maybe Revelation 8, that is talking not about the end, I think, explicitly, but is talking about Christ in his ascended state. Or what Ryan is preaching on later, the vision that we have of Jesus in Revelation 1, the viewpoint is from seeing Christ as he is in his ascended state. Other passages that I'll try to show this morning, like in Daniel, can't spell, can't even abbreviate Daniel, Daniel 7 or Daniel 1, I think in many ways they're talking about the first coming, the incarnation of Christ. So the death and resurrection of Jesus, to set out a premise, going back to your notes, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the unifying interpretive center of the scriptures according to the scriptures. So seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus somewhat within this drawing, that is the unifying portion of scriptures according to the scriptures. After Jesus' own re uh, resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus shows what, he, what I am talking about. He says in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what Jesus is doing, if I can just make a timeline here, we have the death and then resurrection. So I'm looking at Luke 24. What Jesus is speaking about is from Moses and the prophets. So we see the the whole canon of the Old Testament. What he's doing is saying that all of these things are testifying about him. So he's showing us, or he's showing the disciples, and then through their own words, showing us how the Old Testament scriptures point to him as the Savior. He also declares that they will be apostolic witnesses to this gospel to the end of the earth. And the content of those scriptures, and that the witness specifically point to two things, his suffering and death represented by the cross, and the resurrection represented by the arrow pointing up in this symbol. So he goes on to say in, in Luke 24, it says, And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So what I think is incredible about this text, well, there's like 20 things incredible about this text, but one of the things that that I want you to take away from this is that they were in the physical presence of the delivered Messiah, and he opened up their minds, not basing what they would hear on their own experience or on their personal connection to him, but in their minds, they, they would be taught the things that according to scripture are testifying about Jesus so that then they can go off to the ends of the earth and tell people not just what they saw because anyone sees anything, but what they know to be true because he opened up their minds and told them what the scripture said. So, so that's why we study scripture because we want to see Jesus. That's why we put in a lot of work to know different genres or different tools because we want to see Jesus. And what I think will be fun today is we'll look at a couple of passages where we we see these apocalyptic features taking root and from them, we don't just have a vision of the end, but on top of that, we have a vision of who Jesus is. So according to Jesus, all scripture and the genre of apocalypse included finds its center of gravity in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Keeping this simple truth in mind, we can be transformed by looking at Daniel, by looking at Revelation, by looking at the things that might originally scare us or we might find complex. By looking at them, we see Jesus for who he is. So that's kind of the premise that I'm coming from here. The aim, so on your outline, the aim of apocalyptic literature is basically this. The splendor of Jesus' glory can be seen and cherished for his, from his people's viewpoint. The splendor of Jesus' glory can be seen and cherished. He doesn't limit himself to be seen in his second return, but also his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. So when looking at apocalyptic literatures, we're not just looking at the end, though 
it is really great to look at the end. We're also seeing him for who he is currently for us. And you would imagine, or you might remember, what it must have been like to be the recipients of these texts and to be reminded of what Jesus is currently doing for him. Both being reminded of his incarnation, his work, his death, his resurrection, but the reality that he is ruling and reigning already. So the trick of this is to find the gravity of the text. So in many ways, um, well, this is a terrible example, but I'll go with it. So you have a bowl, and you have a hole inside of a bowl, and you have a marble inside this bowl, so you're holding it up. And the goal of this game is to get the marble out of the bowl, but you can't tip the bowl over. You got to get the marble to the hole to where it falls out. Now, it'd be easy if the hole was just on the bottom of the bowl. You would just hold it up normally. But in many ways, in our text, it it doesn't seem as clear at first sight. So the hole may may be off to the side. So you, you find the center of gravity, the center of where that ball would come out of that hole. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do with some of our apocalyptic texts. So what we've done a little bit today, I've got to learn how to use this. It's my iPad. Um, What we're doing today is we are trying to get from a text of Scripture all the way to application in our life. Now you go, great, how do I do that? Well, we've, we've shown you a couple of things that you do. So whether you're looking at context or history or symbols or other features that Ryan talked about where you're actually just trying to let the text be exposed to you. What is fully happening in this text? Because we don't want to jump straight to application like I use the example from Revelation 7. Don't jump straight to application without trying to find out what in the world is happening in this text. Otherwise, Revelation is about you should mow your yard and, and you should take out the trash. So what we're doing here is we're not only showing you the text from the perspective of them, but now we're also going to try to show you, or I'm going to try to show you how to get to the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection. Because if you just have a text that has a bunch of information about it and you try to go straight from application... You really are just teaching a history class to yourself, or you're just teaching yourself normal morality, or, you know, because these guys went through something hard, I can go through something hard too. And you you lose the gravity of the text, whereas without Christ, ultimately, the texts don't really seem to be anything other than history or examples or morals for which we live by. So the trick is to find the gravity of the text. By that I mean to answer the questions like, where is specifically the Lord in this text? Or where is the emphasis of Jesus in this text? Or where is the gravity of this situation that's being talked about? We don't want Jesus, we don't want, we often don't want Jesus in all of his fullness. We just want to see him at the end, but what I hope to encourage you is to find him where he is and where he's wanting us to see him from. The apocalyptic literature doesn't have to be reduced to a start and an ending, but also Jesus can show up to us throughout the scriptures in a way that he desires. So ways that we would normally do this, some strategies for this still in that same section. Um, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at how helpful cross-references are. 
I'm, I'm amazed at how helpful other really smart people have written in the margins of my Bible to say, hey, this isn't the first time that stone has been used. It's actually shown in other parts or, or different things. So to look at things like cross-references or develop a good understanding of, of the timeline of Scripture that Daniel, I'll just use because we'll use it in a little bit, isn't just an isolated event, but it's happening within God's unfolded plan for his people. Consider the historical fulfillment of what's happening. Consider the history of the context. Consider the themes that are developing or showing themselves, the, the symbols um, that Ryan, uh, some of those features that Ryan talked about. And then we see um, some key doctrines unfold itself. So it's amazing when we, when we go to a text and we actually find clarity within the text, it's often, I think, most proper because we have tried to have the text expose itself to us. Then we've seen the text fit into a biblical theological framework. And then from that we see um, alignment with other passages of Scripture that we can form a systematic theology from where, where what's being talked about in this passage doctrinally is also something that's not new to this passage. It's being talked about in other portions of Scripture. And from there we can take steps back up and seeing where this ultimately applies to our lives, allows us to expose this to other people through either evangelism or sanctifying works. So what we do is we start with the text, and we find out what God wants us to see from the text, and there are you know, a lot of different strategies to do that. So I want us to do a couple of examples. I want you to turn to the book of Daniel and go to chapter 2. Book of Daniel, chapter 2. Book of Daniel, chapter 2. It's totally fine. If you use a table of contents, you would not be the first. Okay, and what I want you to do is starting at verse 17, I want you to either read thoroughly if you're a quick reader or scan over it if you're not a quick reader. And I want you to start looking at specific words on your own from verse 17 all the way through um, verse... 35. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes. And what I want you to look for, so I just told you to look at words and I didn't say anything about it. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't even know. That was unhelpful. So I want you to look at words. I want you to tell me, and you'll be telling other people, how we know that this is apocalyptic literature. So using different features or tools that Ryan talked about earlier, what are some things that, that shine to the top that tells you that this is apocalyptic literature. So just a couple of minutes on your own, read through those. Not looking for you to interpret, not looking for you to know what this passage immediately means, but just what are some words that tell you this is apocalyptic literature we're dealing with here? How are we doing? 
not well. Okay. Now the goal of this will be to show you that we can get to the cross and resurrection and return or the ascension and return of who Jesus is to remind ourselves of what Jesus is and what he's doing by looking at these apocalyptic passages. And we're going to do this by, by using the things that we've been told from earlier lectures. All right. Decent enough. Okay, so what are, what, are some, what are some words or phrases that seep to the top that tell you that this is apocalyptic literature? Sorry? Say Revealing. Okay, what verse was that? 29 through 30. 28 through 30. Well, you, I mean, chapter 2. Um, revealing. Great. What's another one? Okay, different images. Hold on to those for a second. I'm looking, sorry, I'm looking for lexical words, so specific words. Um, what verse? 25. Brought up to Daniel before the king, he said to them, found among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known, make known to the king the interpretation. Great, we'll use both of those. Make known. These are really good. Destroy. Destroy. Okay. Did you say 24? 24. 30. 38. Okay. Revealed in verse 19. Good. Vision in verse 19. Good. What about 22? Verse 22, what do you see there? Yeah, deep and hidden things. Something is up if something deep and hidden is being revealed. Remember what Ryan talked about, how, how these are things being revealed or the curtain is being pulled back? Okay, something's being given. What about in, what about, so we had verse 28 through 30. What about specifically in verse 28? Yeah, he reveals mysteries. Oh my, what is that? Oh, okay, well, this is becoming apocalyptic as well. Okay. <laughs> All right, what about verse 30? Same kind of thing. Mystery has been revealed. Okay, so it's all over the place. That's the point. So those are some lexical things that we can see if we're just going to sit down and study. Things that are popping up to the top. What about, what about things like symbols? Okay. Okay, 31. The word there is image. Really good. You know what? I'm not even going to write it down. Um, 31 image. What about, what about 29? 
29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So I see some latter days or after this, this idea of something happening in the future. What's another one? What's a big one? I've said it once in the first talk, as it's important as a symbol, I said it as a, as a clue or as an Easter egg, beginning of this talk, something that's important. Stone, stone. really good. All right, where is stone? 34 and 35. As, as you looked, it says in verse 4, 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So let's, I'm going to clue you in. I don't think this passage is about Jesus' return. All right. So what, if, we were, if you were just dead certain on this is about Jesus' return, how would you then explain this text using those, those words like revealed and symbols like stone or latter days? How would you explain that this is about Jesus' return? What's that? Okay. In verse 38, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven making you rule over them. You're like the head of gold. Good. Anything else? Yeah, so you'd have to use more interpretation. Maybe you try to bring more into the text. Um, so one of the ways that we can avoid interpreting stuff wrong is just to see what, what's being expressed in this passage that clues us into other passages of Scripture. Um, so one of the things that I, I mentioned earlier that can really help you out are cross-references of this. All right, so if anyone has a Bible that has a cross-reference and you go to that word stone, you might have a little symbol there, maybe a, like a tiny F or a tiny one or something and you go to that cross-reference, what's something that shouts out, us, out at us about this cross-reference? Okay, what does the cross-reference say? All right. Who has a cross-reference that you could say what, what's written there for this stone part? No one? What's that? Okay, Luke 20, 18. Flip over to Luke 20, 18. Smart people long ago said that these two passages connected really well. So Luke 20, I want you to hold your finger there. Luke 20 and verse 18. I'm going to put a pencil in mine. What other, what other thing is shouting at you from a cross-reference? Anyone else have it? Psalm 118. Okay, let's flip back to Psalm 118. And let's just see what these wise people had in mind. 
Psalm 118. Psalm 118. All right, I'm going to read Psalm 118. Can you tell me what verse? Verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So then in our passage it says, As you look, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. So Psalm 118 tells us that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone Daniel chapter 2 tells us that the stone was not cut out by man, but it sought to destroy wickedness. And then in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, it says this. I'll start up in verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So when we turn to Luke 20, or when we turn back to uh, Psalm 118, what we see here is that Jesus is teaching in Luke 20 that there's something about these stones that talk about who he is. You can recall that in this chapter, Jesus' authority is being questioned by religious leaders. So if you just look above it, you see the context here of Luke 20 is in the parable of the wicked tenants, where those who had been given much had not used what had been given to them, and what would later come for them would be judgment. So we see where a man planted a vineyard in the field, and then the prophets, as Jesus would interpret, were destroyed by wickedness, and then the son of the vineyard planter was even destroyed by the wickedness that was all around them. And Jesus is saying that this is ultimately what is going to happen to him, like you did with the prophets, where he's kind of pointing at these people, like you did with the prophets where you killed them because of what they said. You're also going to kill me for what I said and who I am. And he's saying to that them, or he's saying that to them as their Lord. Periodically, the owner sent out servants to check on its progress of the field, and each time unruly tenants persecuted and even killed the servants. The story goes on that the owner sent his own beloved son in hopes that even he would be heard, but the wicked tenants did not receive his authority. So when Jesus finished telling the story to the religious leaders, they were outraged because they knew that he was referring to their rejection of, of him, and this is at which Luke pins for us. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So what Jesus is doing is he's bringing in these two texts that we might see as maybe separate, even though they're using common features or common symbols. That's really neat that the authors of the scriptures use the same kind of things. It means we don't have to have much in our repertoire. But what Jesus is saying, that these common features are not just talking about the end, or they're not talking about the end, but these two features are actually talking about him. Jesus appeals to these two texts, Psalm 118 and Luke 20, 
or Psalm 118 in Daniel 2 when defending his parable about his impeding death. So the context of the first citation referenced by Jesus has to do with the psalmist's belief that although hard-pressed, I shall not die, but I shall live, he has not given me over to death. So when Jesus told the parable predicting his own death, he did so with the psalm about life and death and a stone that will crush his enemies. Similarly, in alluding to Daniel 2, Jesus connects his own death as the fulfillment of the apocalyptic dream given to Daniel of the stone that broke them in pieces. So we see the similar words here, similar lexical things happening, similar symbols. My point is that when Jesus decided to expose or expound or exegete Daniel 2, because remember he, had, he was going to teach them all the things as they were going to speak about him, he did so in connection with his own death. So when Jesus spoke of Daniel 2, Jesus spoke about his death, didn't speak about his return. So when we go back to Daniel 2, we read this, what we can immediately see by, by using some of the tools or cross-references or, or symbols or the things that are richly engraved in us through the scriptures, that Jesus is not predicting his death, but is showing that it has been predicted for a while to save his people. So he uses Psalm 118. We can read also about it in Matthew 21 where the prophets are killed, the son will be killed, and Jesus is saying that the stone that was hurled at the statues and broke it into pieces has come with all authority, and he will die for his people, and those who reject him will be crushed. So our tendency, like I said, is to read Daniel 2 and see God's sovereignty over the nations at the end time, which is true. It's just not explicitly in this text, whereas when Jesus spoke about Daniel 2, he went to his own death. So when we read Daniel 2, the point is, when we read Daniel 2, we can see a more full, clear picture of what Jesus did for his people. We can see these people in the context of being you know, outlawed for their faith or under oppression, that God revealed to them that there would be one who would come for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And it's going to smash his enemies. And all those who fall in it will be crushed. So the hope that God's people can have within reading Daniel 2 is that one, God is clear to fulfill all the things that he promised to his people, but that he does this by using the stone that the builders would reject, but it's the one that no man can make for himself. So I don't know about you, but I, I just love that. I, I love seeing that in different parts where it's, it's one thing to see Jesus at the end and you could reflect on that for the rest of your life and you would be good to do so. But here we can see Jesus' death and resurrection being talked about from Daniel 2. So you don't just have to get to August when you read through the Bible in a year. You, you can start all the way towards the beginning of the year. And it's just really cool to see how it pops up all over the place. Let me use another example. Let, uh, turn in your scriptures to Zechariah. Zechariah uses apocalyptic literature in chapter 9 through chapter 14. But I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 10. Again, it's all right if you use the table of contents. That's the whole point of this seminar is to become more familiar with how we can wonderfully read God's word. Once you go to Zechariah chapter 10, 
And the goal of this is to use the context, to use the context or the symbols or the different features of apocalyptic literature to take us to who Jesus is, what he has done for us, what he will do for us, what he says he'll finally do for us. So look at Zechariah. I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 12, 12 verse 10. Got really fired up about that verse. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad, Rimon, or Rimen, in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. Verse, or chapter 13, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from every sin and uncleanliness. So if we're using the framework that I mentioned earlier, in the context of Jesus' life, both in his well, okay. In his death and resurrection, in his ascension, and in his return, where do you think, if you just read this for the first time, where do you think this feature fits in? What do you think it's talking about? I'm sorry? Okay, the only child. So is that, is that the second coming? Is that the ascension? Anyone else? Any guesses? We're going we're gonna to try to prove this in a little bit. Cross? Cross resurrection? Death? I think we're all right. I think you were right. There's an only child that clearly seeps to the top. So we want to use some of the thing, same things that we talked about earlier. Um, some of those different features. Want for you, you might have in your cross reference, John 19. So flip over. Flip over to the book of John chapter 19. Remember these words, now pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look at me, look, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So go to John 19. John 19, verse 37. I'll start in verse 36 for context. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it looks like John is using language from Zechariah. And I don't think that was a mistake. Turn now to Revelation chapter 1. We'll just see something that if we were to become more familiar with our scriptures, which I hope to be, 
So I think one of the, one of the things about these seminars is I just want to go home and read Revelation. Because when Ryan talks about the, the things that can be seen, this, this <coughs> cyclical effect of Revelation, it's like, I want to see that for my own. I want to go home and read it. And by reading this so much, we become so familiar with this. I, I had a hermeneutics teacher in the seminary. And this guy taught a whole hermeneutics class with two books, a Hebrew Old Testament and a Greek New Testament. No textbooks, no notes, no nothing. He just went for it. Someone asked in class, how, do you, how, do you, like, how did you get to this point? And he goes, I just read the Bible all the time. And he didn't mean that in a boasting way. And I just thought, man, I will want that. I just want to read the Bible so much to where I just know it and it knows me and I just am amazed at what God reveals to us. Okay, commercial over, Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Chapter one, verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. One more cross-reference that you might have you have a study Bible, flip back to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Now, as you're going there, if you wrote down those passages, John chapter 19, clearly talking about Jesus' death. It's in the midst of the narrative of Jesus' death. And then Revelation chapter 1, talking about the view of him as ascended, this vision of him, but also being reminded of what was happening to him in his death. And then we have Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 29, another passage. Chapter 10, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So spirit of grace And I will pour out, in Zechariah, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who had spurned the Son of God and had profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So what what Hebrews does, I think in these couple of sections, is it's really highlighting we're trying to put forward a, a fullness of what Jesus' death actually meant and what it shows to us and what is, what is to be taken away from it. And, it's, and it seems like it's pushing us in this passage towards the return of not only using language that's similar to Zechariah, but also there's this aching for judgment to be put on those who, who spurn the spirit of grace because the spirit of grace was poured out on those through Christ's death and his resurrection. So we look at this passage, we see some things that seem to just shout at us from all over scripture. And where do we think this is, this is, <laughs> I don't know why I keep trying. Where do we think this, what do we think this is talking about? His death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. Now in many ways it seems most clear that it's talking about his death. It certainly seems to push us towards his return, right? Where there's this, this aching for God's just wrath to be poured out on all those who hated him, even though we see here what Jesus did, what Jesus did on the cross. So it's incredible to see how when we, when we let the text expose itself to us, how we can get to the, the work and the life in the predicted work of who Jesus is. 
Yeah. Is who? Yawa. Yeah. So if Yehua said uh, that they will look upon me when they fear, when he, and we apply that to Jesus, then we're saying Jesus is Yehua. Yeah, that's right. So what we have here is we have illusions, all starting with an A, not illusions. So we have illusions all over the scriptures. And in this passage in Zechariah, it's, Language from it is used more than 10 times in the New Testament. And so it allows us to worship Christ. I think, not better, because it's not a contest, but it, but it allows us to worship Christ maybe more fully. Because who doesn't want to see a more clear picture of who Jesus is? Both in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. You know, if I were to ask you for a highlight reel of your life, you may not just show me the year 34 that you were alive. Even if that was a really cool year, to get a great glimpse of you, I, I want to see the whole picture. And, and when we look at apocalyptic literature, we get to see a, a wonderful big picture of who Jesus is. So it not only gives us hope, the point of this is this, it, apocalyptic literature doesn't just give us hope that Jesus will return. It, it gives us a focus of who Jesus is. And by reading it bit by bit, you could take all these different passages of apocalyptic literature and just like make a big sheet and go, okay, I think this one is talking about his resurrection. I think this one is talking about his death. I think it's like, man, I want to, I want to have like 10 kids and homeschool them all so I can force them to do this like all day long because it'd be so good for me, right? It's like, this is, instead of math, we're doing this today. But it, but it allows us to see him for who he is. And, and that really is what apocalyptic literature is about. It's about Jesus for us. It's not just rules or features, but by using those different things to read it correctly, we can see him as he presents himself to us. Any questions on this? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, again, be reminded of Genesis 3, the promise that from the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And it was popular in the late 90s when I went to church camp. It was popular to be asked the question, when you get to the gates of heaven, what will you say? And I think um, in studying apocalyptic literature and being reminded of this, being reminded where this turmoil tension started in Genesis 3, I, I can't imagine my question being anything other than like, what, how did I get to be a part of this? Like the, the Lord is going to crush 
the head of the serpent and we get to be on the side of the Lord when we see him for who he is. It's just incredible. So takeaway homework that no one will grade you on. Look at Revelation 1, Revelation 8, 12, and 19. And just on your own, see where you would find Jesus in those placements of his, of his life. So I'll, I'll say him again. So in his death, resurrection, ascension, return. Revelation 1, Revelation 8, Revelation 12, Revelation 19. There's some debate on two of them, which is fine. But I think you, you just get a glimpse of that. And when you see, you know, like what Ryan said, Revelation kind of cyclically unfolding, it, it can show different venues for that. Let me pray for us, and then we won't take a break. Ryan will come up, and Ryan will, Ryan will preach from Revelation 1, one of the most popular viewpoints of who Jesus is. Um, so let me pray for us. God, thank you for including us in your glorious promised defeat of darkness and sin and despair and allow us to see from your scriptures this play out to where it, it captures our affections and our desire in such a way that we will never cease in worshiping you and telling other people of how they can worship you and seeing you for who you are. Father, we say these things in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.